Um, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it now or one on your phone? Uh, otherwise, the words will appear behind me. Um, we are in Acts 3 today, so we're reading Acts 3, verses 1, right through to verse 26. That's Acts 3, verses 1 through to 26, and this is God's Word. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the, palace, in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So we are into the second week of the first block of our walk through Acts. And these first four sessions are all dealing with how the church then came alive at home in Jerusalem. 
And as we do, uh, it's all about some of the features of that early journey that we want to highlight, okay? So these first four sessions are going to be about features or incidents that take part, that, take, that happen in those kind of early stages of this church being birthed in Jerusalem. And so last week it was about the first church, and this week it is about the first miracle. A number of years ago, I traveled to Albania. Uh, for a week uh, to do some work out there with a project that a number of uh, people that were on our board had been working with for many years. And uh, Albania is kind of, it's not, you know, someone says you're going to somewhere else to do mission. It's not usually Albania that jumps to the top of your list, right? You know, people say Africa or places like that, right? Albania is not normally the sorts of places that jump up your list of places you want to go, but we went And as part of the trip there, we spent some time at a school that had worked with kids from really disadvantaged backgrounds, orphans, uh, kids that had just been abandoned on the street. It was a really uh, incredible time, right? This school full of kids that had had such difficult starts to life was just so very full of joy. People cared for them, loved them, worked with them, tried to teach them, tried to raise them. It was an astonishing time. So we're in this large room and there are like a hundred kids there. There are all these volunteers and teachers and people that were working with them uh, in that particular project, right? And they're going mad, right? So they're doing this kind of Christian service part of the week. So they're doing like worship songs and there's actions. And I don't know if you've ever been away to, to somewhere where they're doing it in a different language than yours, but it's like a totally humble and an awesome experience. So there's all these kids, they are worshiping Jesus with everything they've got. And then there's, you know, like me, very Northern Irish on the side, like just very rigid, but like very kind of like in awe of what's going on, right? I'm loving it in my very kind of Northern Irish kind of on the edges way that we do these things, right? And it's incredible, right? And there's so much joy in the room. And then the leader who's got all these kids like whipped up and they obviously love him, right? The leader gets up and go, and now Mr. David is going to come and give you the talk for today. And I'm like, what? Nobody ever talked about a talk. Like nobody prepared me. Nobody said anything. There was no prep or planning. There was no warning. There was just a hundred small faces like looking at you like, oh my goodness, they brought this guy all the way here to speak. Like, will you hear what comes out of his mouth, right? And it was terrible, right? I like cobbled together this, you know, something on the parable of the lost coin or something like that, right? Like I, I cobbled it together. I delivered. They were all very kind, you know, very kind people. And they said nice things about it. It was awful, right? But lots of us will know that feeling of being dropped in it, right? I don't know if you've ever encountered just being dropped in it before, okay? Like when your husband, wife asks you to take the baby for a minute, knowing full well that they can smell the fact that the baby has pooed, and now they've just handed you a time bomb, right? And you've got to change them. Or when your work colleague asks you to take on that case, knowing full well the mad and very decorated long history that that person that you're about to take on has got. Or do you remember parties? Do you remember those whenever you like went to houses and stuff and there were loads of people there, right? And your friend who gets stuck with the kind of, you know, the awkward person offloads them to you and then disappears to the far corner of the house, right? Being dropped in it. And when I think about, you know, large swathes of my own personal leadership journey, it is just littered with somehow ending up being given responsibility for far more than I think I'm capable or should really have responsibility for. 
It's probably why I so frequently drop other people in it. I'm looking at you, Linda, because you get dropped in it all the time, right? The old he or she who gets the vision gets the job is kind of my, my kind of leadership mantra. Like, so now all of you are never going to share the vision that is on your heart, right? I say that today, okay, because the question at the heart of this passage for me is what kind of shape was this new ministry going to take? The church has been birthed in Jerusalem. And the question to me was, what kind of shape is it going to have? Like, what kind of shape is this church going to be? We take so much for granted, having lived through thousands of years of the existence of the church, that the church has a certain shape. But then, what kind of shape was it going to have? Jesus wasn't there anymore. We have to remember that this community was being formed rapidly. And yet the question was, what was the church going to look like? And today's passage demonstrates that the answer to that question is that the church of Jesus Christ was very much going to be shaped by the life of Jesus Christ. One of the things I think of when I read this passage is how right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke's account, in Luke 5, we have this story of the paralyzed man being lured through the roof, right? You know that story where he's lured through and Jesus heals him. And that's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was a sign of his authority and his power, okay? And here we have the early ministry of the church post-Pentecost and Peter and John take part in the healing of a lame man. One right at the start of Jesus' ministry and one right at the start of the ministry of the early church. And the gospel accounts again and again show Jesus performing healings and the miraculous. And it's clear that in the life of this first church in Jerusalem, they too would have healings and the miraculous. This was a church shaped by the life of Jesus Christ. So what does the experience and the example of that church have to speak to us today, right? That's the question. Because I have no doubt, as people who belong to this church, or maybe you belong to another church, uh, as people who are here today, I have no doubt that we all want to be shaped by the life of Jesus, right? I have no doubt that deep down in our, in our heart of hearts, what we want as individual followers and for the church corporate is to be shaped by the life of Jesus. So what is the example of this early church that was so definitely shaped by the life of Jesus have to say to us today? Well, I want to say two things, okay? This is the picture of the first miracle. As one commentator writes, every healing is a parable. And this one, this parable, it points to identity and it points to response. This one points to identity and response. Let's read those first uh, 12 verses again. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful when he was, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. 
When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And then they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and some came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? This section is really all about a name. It's really all about an identity. And as the son of, the, of a manse, right, I absolutely understand how important a name, in my case, a family surname can be. I have lived all of my life under the reality that I am a Dickinson, right? Our family WhatsApp group is called the Daffia, right? Just in case you ever think about messing with the family, the Daffia will get you. Anyway, but it's had a bearing on my experience of all of my experience in life, right? Particularly as a kid from getting a right royal telling off for reading the communion wine after services when we were little kids, right? Don't worry, it was Presbyterians. It was only slur. We weren't like, you know, infantile alcoholics, right? But reading the communion wine to being caught as teenagers doing handbrake turns in my mom's car in the church car park and a million other stories, part of what always apparently made our crimes so much worse than the crimes of all the other kids around church and around our lives was that we were Dickinson's. We were sons and daughters of the manse. The name loomed large over us. And really this section is about one name looming large over the events that take place. And that's Jesus. Jesus' name loomed large. You see, as we read on from this section into the chapters that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, this incident is actually what causes the conflict with the Jewish leaders in the chapters that are ahead. This is the first healing reported in the first church, right? But Acts actually is full of healings and the miraculous. In total, there are 14 miracles in Acts. Four healings, two raised from the dead, four liberations, three acts of judgment, and one preservation miracle, right? And on top of that, there are further 10 summary statements about the miraculous happening, like the one we read last week in Acts 2 and verse 43. It's a definite feature of life in this early Jerusalem church. And this particular miracle revolves around a lame man who is healed, right? We're told a little bit later in Acts 4 that this man had actually been lame from birth and he was now over 40. So it would have been over 40 years like this. He came to the gate to beg daily. That's what the passage says. And for that reason, everyone would have recognized him. In fact, it's likely, very likely, that Jesus himself probably walked past him during his earthly ministry. So he comes day after day to beg at the gate, the beautiful gate, as Luke records. It's probably the Nicanor gate, which Josephus tells us was made of Corinthian bronze, whatever that is. Apparently, it's far more beautiful than any gold or silver. The gate was 75 feet high. And so this was his spot, right? Sounds as good a spot as any if you have to beg. He'd been coming there for years. The culture of the time was that people with physical impairments often weren't treated with an awful lot of dignity, right? They were outcast. Often the questions were not, how can we help this person? They were, how did this person get that way? And how did, who sinned that they ended up this way? Outcast. 
propped up against the most prominent and beautiful of gates. He was just part of the furniture for people on the path to worship. That's this man. And so he asks. Beggars had to be bold. The writer Homer wrote, beg boldly boldly or stay needy. So he picked his spot. He asked boldly. He probably asked day after day after day. The assumption was that people on their way to worship were maybe more vulnerable to be generous and hand over their money, right? People aren't stupid. That's why they sit in places like that. And he asks. But what he gets in return is something that he could never have expected. He was looking for money. But instead he found faith and his body was restored. Four times, Luke tells us, in those verses 8 to 12, that he walked, right? As if to emphasize the astonishing thing that this person whose legs had never worked all of a sudden works so well that he walks. The lame man was using legs that he had never used before. He'd learned to live in the limitations of his life, and now there were new possibilities. But even though he was cured, I love that it tells us he still had to cling on to Peter and John. He was cured, but he was still clinging. He was cured, but he was still clinging. This was a whole new life. Old limitations had been transferred to new possibilities. That's what had happened in that moment for this man. And the incredible thing, as it is for us, for anyone that has ever taken part in any kind of prayer for somebody and God has moved and stuff has shifted and stuff has happened in their life, the incredible thing for us today is the same as what happened for Peter then, that the power was Jesus, but the hand that lifted him up was Peter's. And that's important, right? Because there were optics going on in this moment. And in our world today, we know all about optics, don't we? Confession time. During lockdown, I very nearly bought a BMW, okay? It was five years old, right? And it was in very good condition. And it was a very good deal. And I could list all sorts of things like that, right? But when I was talking to Ross, who's on our leadership team, he's kind of into cars and stuff like that, right? I phoned Ross to talk to him. Ross had one line for me. Dicko, mate, you need to think about the optics. If you buy a BMW, it makes you one of those people, is what he told me on the phone, right? So... I didn't buy the BMW, we bought a Skoda, and now everyone thinks we're thoroughly good people, right? Because that's how it works, isn't it? And they're right, right? But there are optics going on here, right? And the optics work two ways. In the church, right? The lame and the outcast and the broken and those on the fringes who lived their lives being overlooked weren't going to be overlooked anymore. In this new church, those that were on the fringes, that were pushed aside, that were begging at the gates on the way to worship, they weren't going to be overlooked anymore. They were seen. They were noticed. To people who weren't usually even allowed into the temple, Jesus had met with them. So there's optics one way, but then there's optics the other way, that all eyes were on the disciples too. See, one of the incredible things about Jesus is that even though he was the servant king, he was entirely comfortable when all eyes were on him. He was entirely comfortable with it. 
Think about it. Time and time again, he goes to the sorts of places that drew attention, like to the synagogue on a Sunday and then tells them he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Like, think about that. You can only be deeply comfortable with all eyes being on you and drawing all eyes to you if you say and do things exactly like that. All eyes were on Jesus. And now now all eyes were on the disciples. Like all eyes are on us. In this culture, in this day and age, all eyes are on us. And right as all eyes are on Peter and John, the incredible thing is that they point all the eyes away from them. Verse 12, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? What's incredible is that just a short time before, speaking after the Pentecost, Peter had had to tell everyone that the things that were going on weren't because they were drunk, right? He'd had to refute that they were drunk. And here, he's having to refute that the healing had anything to do with them. And it was all to do with one name. And it was Jesus. And that's the thing about healing, right? I get that we don't have time to do a whole session on healing, right? Because that's a big thing. And, and in many ways, that, that's a question that can run and run and run. I get that reading the passage today is painful for those of us who have longed for the reality of the first church to be ours in the face of praying for someone or something that you desperately wish and hope and desire to change. Long for healing to be poured out as regularly and powerfully as it has been at times in the history of the church. Like at this point in in time or at points of time like revivals that have happened in history. And yet, it's not. Today, healing doesn't happen as often as it did in those times. We live now in the tension of the now and the not yet. We see glimpses, but in some way they saw in much greater color, much greater clarity, so much fuller, so much clearer then. And one way to think of it is that at times in human history, there have been authenticating works, right? Miracles which accompanied teaching and moves of God and showed the world around the life of Jesus that they were trying to point to. Something catalytic was happening right now in the life of the church, and these were catalytic moments. And so Peter and John, living in this moment where the miraculous was happening regularly in their ministry and alive in the church, they point away from them to the authority of Jesus, whose name they are under, whose name the lame man finds faith in that day. And here's the thing. Though at times we may say that it feels twee, that is the gift that is so much greater than anything that might happen in our bodies. And really, that's what Peter is at pains to point out. It's a healing but it's not about the healing. That's what he's trying to say. Guys, this is a healing, but it's not about the healing. But here's the question that I think of when I read this passage, right? Right at the start, Peter has asked for money. It's all the lame man wanted when he looked at him that day. And my question when I read this passage every time is, what if he'd had the money? Like, what if he'd had it just to give to him? Like so often we do when we're faced with things like this. If we have the resource, we deal it out, we move on. What if Peter had the money? Would would we ever read about what we read about today? 
And for many moments in my own life, when faced with circumstances and decisions and catalytic moments, right through to the mundane of the everyday, I realize that so very often I'm just operating out of my own resources. I'm just operating out of what I have and what I do and what I can manage and what I'm able for. I move and do and act and speak out of what I have in my pocket, in my locker, in my resources. What if I only have a belief that stretches as far as my resources do? What if Peter had the money that day? Do we ever see and read about the miracle today? When I could trust and seek and act out of the power that is his. So what do we do then? If miracles aren't maybe as common as they were then, if they maybe don't seem to operate in just the same dynamic that they did for Peter and John in the days of that first church, then what do we do now? Well, one of my favorite church leaders ever is a guy called Sandy Miller. Uh, he's an old guy. He was the, uh, the vicar at Holy Trinity Brompton in London. And I, I just, everything about him is just golden. He's just one of those kind of older guys that it sort of feels like at this point in his life, he kind of doesn't care about reputation or going out quietly or any of that sort of junk anymore. He's just set himself to even in his 70s and 80s going after the kingdom of God. And he wrote this little book. It's kind of a bunch of little reflections or little kind of anecdotes or things that he said along the way. And um, I love this. Okay, this is what he writes himself about things uh, like healing on the topic of power and authority. He says this, I saw the difference between power and authority one night at a service. We had a woman who brought a dog into the church. This is the sort of thing you only say in like Holy Trinity Brompton where I've brought my dog with me and she also comes. Anyway, now I love dogs, but we don't have a ministry to dogs. And this was a horrid dog. I mean, looking one with its ears clipped. The church was packed, and I wasn't sure how the dog would react if somebody trod on it by mistake. So I said to her, I'm very sorry, but you cannot bring that dog in here. She said, I'm going to. I don't know what what I would do now, but then I found myself saying to her, well, I'm very sorry, but if you bring the dog in here, I shall have to call the police and have you and the dog removed. She said, go ahead and continue to walk into the church. So I had to. Now, I'm approaching an age when all police officers look young, but this was a young policeman. He was about 19, but he was wearing the uniform of the Metropolitan Police, and as he walked in, she walked out. That's authority. He didn't even say anything to her, but of course, behind the uniform lies all the resources of the Metropolitan Police, and behind that, all the Queen's horses and all the Queen's men. Not as many as she once had, but enough still to deal with a woman and her dog. The point is this, that Jesus gave his disciples authority and power. We therefore have this authority. Let's pray for more power. We live by faith in Jesus' name. We are the church moving in his authority, right? We believe that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the authority. Maybe it's time that we realize that we have empty pockets for the questions of our time. 
Maybe it's time we realize in many ways that we have empty pockets for the questions and the things that are in front of us and no resources to meet the lame reality of the world in which we live. And that lack of resources might be the call to trust in an authority we already have, but to pray for and seek the power to change lives. This is about an identity. This is about a name. It's Jesus' name, and it looms large over this first miracle. But second, it's all about response. It's about response. I think at this stage in our lives in 2021, right, we realize that there is stuff that happens and then there's the things that we do with it, right? It's things that happen in our lives, things we do, things that happen to us, things that happen in our world, but then there's what we do in response, right? For example, I have a law degree, but I will never use it. It is an ornament, right? And right about now, lots of people, maybe some of you in the room, are looking back at a full year of furlough, all of that space, and full of regret that all you learned to do was how to bake sardo, right? Maybe at this point, you're looking back, oh goodness, how did I respond to having all that space in my life? My best friend has learned Cantonese, and I've just learned how to make a sardo. Maybe they're as complicated as each other. I don't know. It's all about response, right? It's all about what you do with it. And the thing is that throughout the book of Acts, As we'll see, signs and miracles were the most abundant way of drawing attention to the gospel. In many ways, right, they were the hook. They were the thing that grabbed and gathered people around something that was happening. And this passage today actually points to two responses that are going on. One, the lame beggar who responds finds faith and is healed that day. Two, the call on Israel to respond. And that's because Jerusalem had already encountered Jesus in the flesh, but the thing is that they'd responded to him in the ways that we might not be able to imagine. They'd crucified him. They'd met Jesus. He'd been there in that city, and they'd crucified him. And in many ways, right, what we're watching here is a family argument, okay? It's kind of like a family argument. You know whenever you go out with your couple mates, whoever they are, could be married, could just be a couple, right? And then they get into it over something while you're at a restaurant or you're you're in their back garden and all you want to do is do like the Homer Simpson meme and like evaporate into the hedge or sofa or anything just to get away from the awkwardness of the fact that they're waging war over one of them cutting the other one off or whatever it is, right? You always do that. As soon as that's been wheeled out, you're in deep trouble. Just get out of there right? Evacuate, get away. And this is a family argument, right? This is Peter, a Jew, speaking to the Jewish audience in Jerusalem about how they need to respond in light of what they've done previously. And he doesn't hold back. This is what it says, verses 13 to 16. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. First tactic is guilt. He tells them, you're guilty. 
The thing is, we don't really like that in this day and age, do we? That kind of affronts something in us. We don't like things that guilt or shame or those, that sort of language, do we? We recoil like, eesh, like, can't guilt people like that anymore. Thing is, though, this is a family argument. And Peter counts himself in the number of those who disowned Jesus. Tells them, you disowned Jesus. So did he. Three times. He counts himself among the number who did it. And there's a very real possibility that there were people in the crowd that day who had been in the crowd that Good Friday and called for Jesus to be killed. You've all just seen the miracle. He's standing right here, and it had nothing to do with us. It was Jesus, but this is what you've already done to him. First stop is guilty, but then he goes on. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. From guilt to ignorance. Because ignorance is a little bit better than guilt, right? I mean, ignorance is kind of a little bit less blameful, right? And that's because ignorance isn't as bad. Like, you didn't know you did it, but you did it, right? That's what he's saying now. But the thing is, across both of those two blocks, one thing is consistent. One thing is consistent about both of the claims that he makes, and it's that he's still pointing at Jesus. That name, that incredible name. Just look at how many titles he uses. Servant and Christ, Holy One and Author of Life, Prophet and Stone. Incredible titles. But all of them speak of and are held together in the uniqueness of just one name. Jesus, in his sufferings and glory, his character and his mission, his revelation and his redemption. It's all in the name. And Peter is saying, you did this. You're guilty. Maybe you were ignorant. But the whole point was not the actions of the many. He is pointing to the life of the one. And he uses a word that we've heard often in the church. We've used often in the church. If you've been around Corn Market or those sorts of places at any stage in the last year, even through lockdown, you will have heard this word many, many times. The word is repent, right? We've all heard that word, repent. And actually, it comes from the word metanoia. And actually, that word literally means after mind or after thought. In other words, repent means change of mind. It means change of mind. If faith or allegiance, as we were talking about last week, is about a change of heart, then repentance is about a change of mind. 
And really it means to think differently about yourself, about God, about sin. And truth repentance has nothing to do with the kind of sorrow from sin thing that very often we think it does. Those are the results of repentance. What do I mean? Well, for example, the Old Testament contains 46 references to the word repent. 37 of those are attributed to God. In other words, if repent meant sorry about sin, then God had sinned. But he hadn't. Because that's not what repentance means. It means a change of mind. And Peter is calling Israel to change theirs. He's calling Israel to change their mind from who they thought Jesus was to who he really is. From unbelief to belief. You know, the reality for the Jewish crowd gathered that day is that the thing they were struggling with most was not the miracle that they'd just seen. The thing they were struggling with most was the cross. They'd seen miracles. They'd known Jesus had performed miracles. There were mystics and miracle workers of all kinds in those days. They had no problem believing that this man had really been healed. That was not their problem in that day. What their problem was, was the cross. They never got over the fact that the Messiah had been killed in such a shameful way. They couldn't get over the cross. And so they never got Jesus. And here's where it lands. Right at the start, right when the lame man had asked Peter and John for money, their first response was this. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention. Here's the thing. Being around the city center an awful lot, you see an awful lot of people in the street. And very often our response when we walk by them is to not look at them is to look away and if we give to them or we try to help them in some way it's almost through this like regrettable I give to you but I can't look at you because I have to face what is what I'm looking at whenever I do that very often we do it and we try to distance ourselves from it but not Peter and John look at me this is the same thing Jesus had been saying again and again and again in his ministry whenever he'd risen to speak and he started with the line, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is saying, look at me. Look at me. And Peter and John say the same thing. Jesus doesn't need your resources He's not impressed with your accomplishments or your achievements, your activity or your ambition. He's not impressed with them. He doesn't need them. Equally, he's not put off by your past, by your failures, by the times you've disowned them before, by the mind you thought you made up, by the lameness you might feel in your life. It doesn't put him off. He's not impressed by your accomplishments. He's not put off by your failures. What does Jesus want today? He wants your attention. He wants your attention. He wants you to look at him. He wants you to lift your eyes from the shame that you might feel or the place that you're in and look at him. Really look at him. Look at the one who carries the name. That was all of those titles. 
servant, prophet, Christ, king of all kings, name above every name. He wants you to look at him. This miracle is a parable in many ways. And it has kind of two aspects. Identity. That this is a miracle that's not really about the miracle. It's about the Jesus that the miracle points towards. The one whose name it's done in. The one who holds all of the power and the authority. It's about identity. And secondly, it's about response. He wants you to look at him. The question is today, will you?